Hello and welcome to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Katie. I'm Iz. And I'm Isabel. Today we're going to be talking to you about um, tourism and archaeological sites just around the world. So, um, I mean, I'm going to be talking about Chichen Itza, but I'll let someone else kind of introduce their site if that works. Yeah, I can go for it. So I'm going to be talking um, a lot about Egypt today. Um, kind of this phenomenon called um, Egyptomania and then different archaeological sites in Egypt um, that have kind of fueled um, this interest. Katie, do you want to introduce what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I'm going to be talking about Machu Picchu, which is an Incan um, uh, place in <laughs> Peru, for lack of a better word. It's a, um, it's a set of ruins is what it is. Yeah, yeah so... First, we're just going to kind of introduce tourism in the anthropology, archaeology world. Um, there's kind of many sides and good and bads of tourism in um, this, like in the world of archaeology, <laughs> where um, people and places are commodified and exploited for tourists' benefit, but also it can bring in lots of economy and money into these places that otherwise maybe would struggle. Um, yeah, there are definite pros and cons of tourism that we'll be exploring today. Mm -hmm. um, so should I start? Yeah, Egypt? go for yeah, it. For sure, it's a big one. Yeah, Egypt's a pretty big one. Um, so I kinda I'll kind of start just by defining um, what Egyptomania is. Um, so in simple terms, it's, it's just this phenomenon 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 <laughs> say that word um of widespread public interest in um the ancient egyptian civilization um and when we think of e egypt we're often thinking of the pyramids um we're thinking of mummies we're thinking of the sphinx um different things um different parts of archaeology um that this country has gained interest in hollywood and um things that have you know been spread to the masses through movies um books, TV shows, even just, you know, National Geographic, um, they really focus on um, the pyramids as this main archaeological site. Um, it's really popular. Um, even things like Cleopatra, we think of Cleopatra um, when we think um, of ancient Egypt, um, even though it is so much more than that. Um, so one thing I kind of wanted to focus on um, a little bit is King Tut um, or King Tutankhamun. Um, and I think... King Tut, you guys have both heard of Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he's definitely um, one of the most popular um, in terms of, you know, mass media and, and Hollywood. He's one of the most popular um, or him himself and then his um, tomb or pyramid is one of the most famous and most talked about. Um, I actually went to the museum and saw um, King Tut when he was on tour. That's so um, cool. Yeah. So quite a while ago, he's in mm -hmm. Toronto. He's on tour again. Um, so his like all the artifacts from um, when they found King Tut is on tour again until is like he coming back. I don't know. He's coming back to Canada, but um, <laughs> he's, so. he's on tour Check. until 2022. Um, and in 2022, there's going to be um, a big exhibit in Cairo and that'll be um, his last, like it'll be everything that they've um, found. Wow. From, yeah. From that archeological site. Um, yeah. So it's really cool. Um, a little background about King Tut. So, he was a, actually a fairly unimportant king um, in terms of um, ancient Egypt, Egyptian history. So he ruled for 10 years before he died. Um, he died at the age of 19. So he ruled from when he was nine 
um, to 19. Wow. <laughs> so young. Um, yeah. So he had a very short life, um, and he was actually quite ill for most of his life. Um, so they've done DNA testing um, on the body, um, and he used a cane his whole life. So he had some, um, I'm not sure they're exactly sure what it is, but he had an infected leg. Um, so he actually only could use one of his legs, his left leg um, he was unable to use. And then he also had many, many malaria infections um, that they tested um, using DNA analysis. Um, also, a few other medical problems um, because of the re- result of incest. Um, his parents were actually brother and sister. Um, so he had a few. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like something that was at the time, uh, like they wanted to keep the bloodline royal, mm-hmm. right? So at the time, that was something that would have been um, seen as like an honorable, good thing to do. Whereas in modern Western culture, um, especially with, um, I guess, our advanced knowledge of genetics and that kind of thing, like that's not that's not something that we do. So it's really interesting how that kind of thing changes over time and place. Yeah, definitely. It was a big part of, you know, ancient, ancient um, Egyptian society. He actually married his half sister um, very young and then. Um, they they tried to have kids, but um, she actually ended up having two miscarriages. Mm-hmm. Um, so once he died, um, again at the age of 19, his body was mummified, um, and it was placed within a 24-pound solid gold mask, um, three wow. gold coffins <laughs> oh, on top of that. Um, he was in a granite sarcophagus, um, and then there was wooden shrines, and then he was placed... Um, in a tomb, and then in that tomb there was more than five hundred art or five thousand, sorry, um, artifacts. Wow. So yeah, so when they found um, this tomb, and it was an archaeologist by the name of Howard Carter um, who discovered this tomb, it was a crazy find, right? It was um, it was pretty amazing. Um, and again, like I said, it was quite um, King Tut and his tomb are quite insignificant. Um, to Egyptian history in the grand scheme and his tomb even though that seems very grand his tomb was actually one of the smallest Mm -hmm. um, of all the kings that ruled so it was one of the smallest but it was really important um, as an archaeological find just because it was nearly completely intact yeah that was something really rare especially because throughout antiquity even um, in Egypt there was lots of looting Mm mm-hmm yeah, this would have been an archaeologist's dream with the gold and the mummy. Yeah. And kind of like conforms to all the stereotypes of mm-hmm. archaeology. Definitely. And there's actually a quote um, Howard Carter himself, he said, when they opened the tomb, um, he's famously quoted for saying, he said, 3,000, 4,000 years may ha- maybe have passed since human feet last trod on the floor of which you stand. The very air you breathe, unchanged through the centuries, um, you share with those who laid the mummy to rest. Was this the mummy that there was, like, a curse placed on the tomb? Yes. I I was going to get to that, too. (laughs) Um, So this is kind of... I wanted to bring up King Tut because this is also where um, this hysteria was created surrounding Egypt. Um, So this is where, you know, people, especially around the world, because um, people knew about the pyramids, and the pyramids were this site that people wanted to visit. Mm -hmm. Um, But Egypt really wasn't accessible um, to people all around the world who still wanted to um, right. see these artifacts. Um, but now with King Tut, um, you had um, this collection that was going on tour um, so people could see it in different countries around the world. Um, but the, the spell you're talking about, I think it's called the Tutankhamun spell. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just this curse about um, 
opening the tomb, I guess. Um, so basically the first individuals who um, entered the tomb all died mysterious deaths. So it was like, yeah, so it just, again, it created more of this hysteria. Um, I'm not sure if it was Howard Carter himself. Um, oh, yes, it was. It was Howard Carter himself. Um, he entered with a team. Um, and in the decade, six of the archaeologists that were the first to enter also passed away. Ooh. Spooky stuff. Yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, sounds like a curse to me. Yeah, so it sounds like a curse. And then it kind of inspired all these movies. So, like, you have the mummy movies, yeah. um, which are, of course, all about these different um, curses. So it inspired a lot of that, um, which is really interesting. Um, and kind of moving forward, there's other things in Egypt. Obviously, we think of the pyramids. Um, so that's a really big um, archaeological site. Um, people visit that. Um, it's really, really popular. Um, something with the pyramids, too, that's interesting. We actually know how the pyramids were built. A lot of um, studies have been done on the pyramids um, and how they would have been built. Um, but the media does still harp on this idea that it's, like, conspiracy theories. So there's all the alien mm -hmm. conspiracy theories. Um, <laughs> Not just slaves. Yeah. Be. <laughs> Could not have been slaves, yeah. Um, so the pyramid's really interesting. And then um, another thing I just wanted to bring up um, quickly before um, we move on to someone else is the Red Rosetta Stone, which I just think is another really interesting one. Um, that was discovered in 1799 um, in Egypt. And again, a lot of us have heard of the Rosetta Stone, um, but it was this block and it was inscribed in Egyptian and Greek. Um, and then there was also... Um, Greek um, demotic. I'm not exactly sure what that is. And then there was hieroglyphics. Um, and I think hieroglyphics has kind of become this like popular term mm -hmm. um, that people think about. Um, but it was, the, the hieroglyphics were translated. Um, there was, um, his name was Jean-Francois Chamollion. I think I'm saying that wrong, but he deciphered the symbols. Um, so they have been deciphered. Um, and again, but again, this is something that like the media kind of harps on as being um, the Egyptians had this like hidden wisdom um, and this hidden language that we won't understand. So I think that's really interesting that, mm -hmm. you know, we have learned a lot from all these finds and this like icon iconography, I guess, of Egypt itself. Yeah. Um, but we still think of it as like a mystery. Yeah. And I think another thing that's really um, interesting to note about the Egyptomania is that, as you mentioned, like, with tourism, it's not all, like, people going to the place. The place sometimes, in some way or another, comes to them. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I know in Victorian times, and this happened in Canada and happened in the U.S., it was very much a facet of uh, Western culture at the time, um, they had mummy opening parties, mummy yeah. unwrapping parties. <laughs> and, yeah, they people who had a significant amount of money would pay to bring over a mummy from Egypt. They'd have all their friends over and they would unwrap the mummy, which, I mean, like nowadays, researchers don't even unwrap mummies. Yeah. Like we have CAT scans and we have imaging. Like it's not necessary. It's disrespectful. It's destructive. Mm -hmm. um, but in the Victorian era, they would have these mummy unwrapping parties. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, sometimes they'd unwrap like just the toes and they'd be like oh right it, it was like a wow <laughs> factor um 
I believe that there is a mummy at the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, who I was told was part of a mummy unwrapping party. His name is An Chow. Um, and if you go to the Royal Ontario Museum, you'll see him laying there. He's one of their um, mummies. And yeah, he's missing his toes now because they're unwrapped and digits tend to fall off if you're mummified and unwrapped. But um, yeah, he was donated to the ROM open unwrapped. Uh, otherwise, they, they wouldn't have done that, um, mm-hmm. especially in this day and age. Yeah, they yeah. try and definitely preserve mm-hmm. everything they find. Yeah, I definitely feel like Egypt sits at the pinnacle of romanticized archaeology where, again, it's highlighted by mummies and mystic and mystery, basically, because people claim they don't know how the pyramids are built. And there's all those TV shows about weird conspiracy theories about Egypt. And so it's a really good example of how tourism and pop culture affects and impacts the public's view on these places mm-hmm. and these people. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a perfect example of that. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess we'll move on to Chichen Itza. Yeah, um, yeah. So I actually visited in the last month. I was there two weeks ago, I guess. Three weeks ago now. That's so, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. But um, if you check out our Instagram, I post a picture there that you guys can check out. It's also on Facebook. Um, I'm gonna, just going to go over a quick history of Chichen Itza and then kind of talk about my own experience there from a personal perspective. So Chichen Itza is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and exists in the Yucatan in Mexico. Um, It became a political power in the peninsula during the Terminal Classic period, which is around uh, 900 Common Era. And as the city grew, and the city grew both in population and complexity. At its height, the city center reached only five kilometers squared and was filled with residents of various heritages and customs, um, creating a mosaic of people occupying the region. It's thought that the society subsided between the 12th and 15th centuries. However, the area was continuously occupied into the 19th century. In this continuation of use of land by the locals in the peninsula, the architecture and ancient city remains held significance to these people as they used the land of their ancestors. As the archaeologists that quote-unquote discovered the site in the 19th century began examining the structures, it became very obvious that the site had been altered in antiquity to accommodate growth and changes in society. And the Mayans implemented preservation procedures to allow the changes to improve the city yet remain stable for future centuries. Um, In the 20th century, archaeologists reflected this behavior as they reconstructed the site for further research and interpretation. So just a side note, you can see if you go, two sides of the pyramid are actually like reconstructed and they've put in new stones and it looks very pristine. And then you go to the other sides and they're like the steps aren't as well built up and like it's crumbled a little bit. And that's actually the side I like the best because it seemed the most authentic and it wasn't reconstructed according to how people wanted tourists to see it, I guess. Um, So archaeologists and the government's intentions of the reconstruction revolved around revenue and commodification of the site, which contrasted the Maya's motivation of advancement and preservation of the culture. So the tourism industry in Mexico and the Yucatan have boomed in the last century, pulling in a multi-million billion dollar revenue. However, the Maya people who still celebrate similar traditions to that of the ancient civilization gain very little of its economic benefit. So tourism companies and resorts use up resources that traditional Mayas would use for agricultural agriculture while they benefit little to none from the commodification of their land. I was also told when we were there that basically uh, Maya people only, they grow up, they speak Maya, Mayan, 
and then they maybe go to school and they learn Spanish. But these um, resorts and stuff that commodify them anyway can, like, they only hire people for good jobs who can speak English. So these aligned people get jobs such as cleaning floors and um, landscaping and stuff, and they're just not, like, benefiting at all mm-hmm. in these big res- um, resort towns because of that. So it's horrible. Mm-hmm. So the act of cultural appropriation creates an illusion of authenticity for the tourists, where they believe that the Maya people are an extinct set of people who are exotic and sensational, but now are long gone. So when you get to Chichen Itza, there's hundreds and hundreds of vendors selling just goods and like souvenirs, and they're all like <laughs> very, like yelling at you basically different prices and pesos that they want you to buy their stuff for. <laughs> And it's intimidating and it's scary, honestly. But then I talked to a tour guide. We had a different time and he was just a local. And he was saying that's the way, that's the only way they can make money is selling these goods at Chichen Itza. And, like, technically they're not legally allowed to be within the archaeological boundaries, but they are. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you just, I don't know, it's really hard to see so many people who should be directly benefiting from their ancestors and not being exploited, but they are. And the only way they can make their money is from a $8 fake, like, charm and, like, yes. stuff like that. So... And, yeah, like, I think it's really interesting as well that you're mentioning that they're not allowed to be within those archaeological boundaries. But those are likely boundaries set by, like, a colonial-type yeah. um, infrastructure, Whereas these people have direct claim and heritage to the land. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting dynamic yeah. with them not being allowed in, um, but having that direct ancestral claim. Yeah, and it's like the tour guides and everybody doing these tours, they're Mexican. They're not Mayans, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So they always have kind of an interesting perspective on it. My group didn't have a great experience well, we did a big tour, which everybody regretted because it felt very commercialized. And mm-hmm. you could tell that they were partnered up with some, like, Mayan um, souvenir store. So they were basically telling us, don't buy anything at Chichen Itza because they're fake and they're not going to sell you authentic goods. And then you kind of get there and realize that they're lying. They're just doing it because they clearly have some sort of investment with this mm-hmm. other souvenir st- yeah. shop that they stop at. And then the tour, once you get there, is we had, like, 50 people to one tour guide. And he clearly was not an archaeologist. He was not a Mayan. He was very biased. And you could see it in his description of the site and his perception of the Mayans versus the Aztecs. And he was basically like, the Mayans were these gentle, like, beings who wouldn't have created a pyramid such as Chichen Itza because they weren't materialistic and they weren't like that and then the Aztecs were these evil people violent coming in and like destroying the culture and they made the Mayans build this pyramid it's like <laughs> there's such a bias mm-hmm. point perspective and point yeah. of view to put on an archaeological site like that on it and yeah it was it was yeah. an interesting experience to see how commercialism mm-hmm. changes a site and how people's perceptions of it can be altered by who's controlling the tourist industry and it's often off like um overseas companies yeah that's really a really good example of how companies um are controlling the narrative yeah and then also kind of um a really good example of how um modern mind people are being ignored so yeah um, you have this archaeological site that 
is kind of being thrust back in time, mm-hmm. even though there's a lot of modern people there that could like, benefit from it. There are it. Mayans living there. Mm-hmm. Like our tour went through on this giant like tour bus. We went through these towns that were Mayan, and basically it felt like the tour guide was like, "Look out there! Look at these people living in poverty!" Like it felt so rude that they were basically yeah. using communities and real people, real like indigenous people as like an exhibit for yeah. people on a bus. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, they're not making any money, but they had all these like beautiful pottery and like mm-hmm. amazing shops along the side of the road. And I don't know, I think like they need to be stopping in these communities and allowing some money distribution to go directly into the Mayans' mm-hmm. pockets. Yeah. That's not happening Absolutely. right now. Yeah. And it's interesting too because so many of these companies, like they advertise, oh, the authentic experience, get back to heritage. <laughs> And it's, it's bull. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's like what they're doing is a completely commercialized, commercialized, commercialized um, settler colonial point of view a lot of the times. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Katie, you can continue Yeah, on. absolutely. So I'm going to be talking a little more generally about tourism, its effects on archaeological sites. And I'll uh, pull from Machu Picchu as an example, which, as I mentioned, is a Peruvian site. So um, one example that kind of ties in nicely to uh, what Isabel was mentioning um, about, I guess, kind of how um, people who might have a claim to a culture are often marginalized in the presentation of the culture. Um, One example of that is the Inca Trail. So it's a trail that is located near um, uh, Machu Picchu, but uh, it was becoming very worn down. So they made regulations that only a certain number of people can access the site per day, um, the trail, and the price was raised, and uh, only certified tour guides could bring people down this trail. And um, on first thought, you can see a lot of the reasoning behind that like you think oh if they raise the price then only people who are like really dedicated to going down the trail will go down the trail um if it's like only professional tour guides then they'll make sure that everybody going down the trail is accounted for and respected or respectful of the trail that kind of thing is uh definitely like the aim behind that kind of legislation but a big problem with that is you're definitely creating a divide in that sort of respect between um, who is able and almost entitled to access it. So by raising the price, you're maybe excluding people in the area who might not have that much money who would like to go down the trail. And a big one is by having only the registered tour guides, um, that excludes the traditional Incan porters who would bring people down the trail. And uh, that was a huge part of their livelihood. Um, showing off their culture by bringing people down this trail, but since they're not certified tour guides by these standards, um, they're not allowed to bring people down the trail anymore. So that's kind of an example of how um, different legislative effects that intend to have a positive effect, especially on preservation, can actually have a negative effect on like a cultural side of things. So I found that really, really interesting Um, as well. Uh, similar to other sites that were mentioned, a lot of the commodities um, and amenities around the site 
are owned by multinational corporations. And this definitely puts, um, it, it definitely removes people from like uh, their own like land claim. So when you're staying at a multinational hotel, you're benefiting that multinational corporation. You're not benefiting the people whose heritage lies in those lands and who would know those lands and the culture best. So that's definitely something to think about when you're going on a tour. Yeah, absolutely. It's really good to be critical of what you're seeing and how it's being framed for the public and all these sites. I think you need that critical eye, no matter how quote-unquote authentic it may seem. It probably has an undertone of colonialism or falsicity that is targeted for revenue. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. You have to think of it as... Um, in some way um, and in some form um, the site is exploiting a group of like a marginalized group of people um, exploiting a culture in some way yeah Um, and even if the culture is extinct or not culture but maybe the people from there doesn't have like direct descendants mm -hmm. anymore it's still exploiting somebody somewhere Mm -hmm. (laughs) that can be problematic and a lot of it is looking to like a lot of the things that we mentioned like have the have noble intentions like intentions of preservation but they might not be thought through entirely from like a cultural standpoint mm-hmm. yeah like if a site's really important to a group of people and then archaeologists or the government comes in and decides to commodify it and they'll reconstruct it to a certain degree and it kind of eliminates the authenticity of it for whether it's that group of people or just um, other people like researchers who want to come in and examine the site or something absolutely yeah definitely awesome so should we do our (laughs) animal shout out yeah let's do it isabel (laughs) we've ran out of direct pets there's only three of us (laughs) so this week we're gonna do a common visitor to hamilton but she lives in toronto and it's my boyfriend's dog callie she's a golden retriever nine years old but she's our She's our rental dog. We take her <laughs> sometimes. We love when Callie lives with us. Yeah, that's, those are the days. So, hi, Callie. Hi, Callie. Don't know if you're listening, yeah. but... Hi, Callie. We can hope. <laughs> so, I like to think that all the animals are listening to us. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> so, next week, it looks like we've set up um, an interview and a discussion with Sarah Dugan, a PhD candidate in the McMaster anthropology department mm-hmm. so she concentrates on food I and nutrition, yeah, nutrition yeah. and anthropology so that should be kind of a different spin on the podcast and it'll be really cool to see what she has to say because she has her own podcast she does yeah. she has her own podcast we're really excited to have her in next week yeah she, yeah. she could teach us a few things about <laughs> podcasting if you're interested in listening to any of her work you can listen over at anthro dish she has some really cool guests, some really cool um, perspectives, and it's all about anthropology of food, nutrition. So it's we're so excited to have her on. She's definitely going to um, share some great insight with us um, about her research, her field, and we're very excited to have her on. So tune back next week for that. And uh, in the meantime, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone.